Uh, We are in Acts chapter 5 this morning. We're going to finish Acts chapter 5. So if you're able, stand as is our custom as I read our passage. It is on the longer side. So for whatever reason you need to sit down as I read, that is 100% fine. I am going to start with verse 12 and then move through the course of the passage. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the sin of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing at the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But but Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him. At his right hand, as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we're witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people. After him, he too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when he had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the, na- that the, that the Christ is Jesus. You may be seated. Before we dive into Acts chapter 5, I want to just briefly remind you uh, that our hope is, uh, is, our belief is that we can use a good Advent season now more than ever. So two requests, if you have an artificial tree of any size that you would consider donating to the church, we could use it. And would all of you, you don't have to be a member of this church, we would love you to give a picture of your family, a framed picture of your family. You can do as, as many pictures as you want. They just can't be gr- bigger than eight by 10. That's, that's about all we'll allow. Uh, but would you bring or, or bring by during office hours or next Sunday a picture of your family framed? We would like to do something special with that. All right, Acts chapter five. Last week, we saw God strike Ananias and Sapphira dead because they, they tried to deceive the whole church and they tried to rob God of the worship that was due him. And then in the last passage, uh, we, we read in chapter 4 that great fear seized the whole church. And I have to, I have to think that at least some in that, that, young, uh, that young church would have wondered, did we just screw all this up? <laughs> Is it all lost? Are we now permanently under some sort of judgment by God because of this great catastrophe that has happened among us? And now in this chapter, we get to see God do even more than he has done up until this point in and through this, this young church. And so what we see in the rest of Acts chapter 5, verses 12 onward, is, is what I will call a, host, a, a healthy church in a hostile environment. The reality that we see in our lives, and we're going to see in Scripture too, is that whenever God does a work through his people, there are those who are attracted to that work, and there are those who are repelled by that work. I, I've been a part of fledgling ministries overseas in in hard soil and I've been a part of booming ministries in the Bible Belt and without exception every place I've ever been a part of seeing God do a work through his people there have been those who have been attracted to that work and there have been those who are repelled by that work the ratios may be different but in every case where I've seen it or heard about it that's what we experience as Christians and and we don't just know this from observation Paul tells us that this is true when he writes to the Corinthians at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 verses 14 through 16 Paul says through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one, a fragrance from death to death to the other, a fragrance from life to life. So really what we get to see in this passage is this playing out. We get to see people being drawn in and we get to see people being repelled. And more than that, Luke gives us kind of a behind the scenes look at what is contributing to this attraction and this repelling and then a little bit what's going on inside the hearts of the people in this passage. So first, let's look at those people who are attracted to what is going on. In verse 14, Luke writes, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of them, both men and women. So what is it that attracted them to what was going on in this, in this young church? Well, we see a few things, but the first thing, and I think the most obvious thing that Luke is putting before us, is that they're attracted to these signs and wonders that are happening. So 
we read that people are coming out for these healings. People are, are bringing their, their sick, their afflicted, they're bringing their possessed in some cases to the apostles. We read that, that some of them were just hoping to get, uh, to get in contact with Peter's shadow. We read that people are beginning to do this, not just in Jerusalem, but all around the surrounding area. And it, and it says all who did this were healed. And I think it's easy for us as 21st century Western believers to think, well, yeah, that, that's great, but that was a unique thing to them. This isn't something that we should expect today. This isn't something that we should pray for today, these kinds of signs and wonders that gets outside of our comfort zone. And we might go to places like Romans 1.16, where Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And we can think, not, not signs and wonders. Or we may go to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 and 23, where Paul says, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And then Jesus himself said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. So, here's the problem. We know from chapter 4, verse 30, that Peter and John are praying for signs and wonders. So were they wrong for praying these prayers? Were they wrong for seeking signs and wonders? I don't think they were wrong at all. Now, I think what Jesus is saying is when we seek, when the wicked who seek signs are the wicked who would use those, those signs, who would demand from a very hard heart that God give more and more evidence if they're going to submit, if they're going to believe, if that's how we approach God, then yes, that is a wicked and adulterous generation. Now, here's how, how John Piper illustrates this, coming from this, this same passage. He says, if, if we are lost sinners in a love affair with the world, And so all of us, without Jesus, we are lost sinners in a love affair with the world. If then, after a long separation, our husband Jesus comes back to us and he says, I love you and I want you back. A wicked and adulterous generation says, prove it. Prove it to me. I don't believe you really love me. Give me a sign and if, if we approach Jesus, we approach God like that, we, we don't believe that you love me, I want you to prove it, I want you to give me a sign, then yes, that's a wicked and adulterous generation, but that's not what's going on in our passage here. Signs and wonders are not in competition with God's word. They, they exist to confirm God's word about salvation for all who have eyes to see it. But... Well, and let me add that nowhere as we go forward in Scripture is there any indication that we shouldn't pray the way that Peter and John are praying. But at this point, we really haven't still gotten to the why. Why were they praying for signs and wonders? I mean, if anybody didn't probably need signs and wonders, it's Peter and John. All these people either knew or probably saw Jesus from a distance doing his, his ministry. They, they saw these miracles the preaching that is going on seems more anointed than that of George Whitfield or John Wesley. So why are they praying for these signs and, signs and wonders? Well, verses 12, 13, and 14 make it very clear that they're praying for these signs and wonders so people would come to the Lord. That was the heart between praying, behind praying for these signs and wonders. So people would come to the Lord. So how do we apply this today? I have no problem saying we pray for signs and wonders that people may come to the Lord. That's how we apply it. And God may or may not 
provide those signs and wonders, but if our hearts are for the lost to be found, for the blind to see, then, then we would be 100% in line with Scripture to pray that crazy things would happen to bring them into the kingdom. When I was about 23, living in Pisa, Italy, single guy, I, uh, I went to a Muse concert one evening in Florence, Italy. And I was on a late train going back from Florence to Pisa. And I remember I very clearly, the whole thing is so clear in my mind, I was the only person in my train car and this guy came on from the other side. And from the moment he came on, he locked eyes with me. And I remember feeling very uncomfortable and he stared at me as he walked straight to me, stopped in front of me and looked at me and in the creepiest possible way in Italian said, do you know God? And I looked at him and I shared the gospel with him and he screamed and ran off that car. And you know the weirdest thing about that entire interaction? I had yet to learn Italian. And then about 15 minutes later, the conductor came and asked me for my ticket and I had no idea what he was saying. I have no idea what happened with that guy. I don't know where that went. It seems like he was repelled, not attracted to what I was saying, but something I can't explain happened. And when we all get to heaven, we can ask God exactly what that was. But for me, this is in the category of these signs and wonders that bring people to the Lord. And it seems like this is the kind of thing that they're praying for, that God is allowing them to see, and it is bringing multitudes into the kingdom. So that's the most, I think, obvious thing that Luke is spotlighting. But it's not the only thing. Another thing that's certainly happening and attracting people to this fledgling church is that the gospel's being proclaimed. (laughs) So we're going to look at the opposition that the, the apostles see in just a little bit, but when Peter is called forward by these, this opposition, the leaders of their day, what does he say? He doesn't say anything that's going to get him off the hook. He doubles down on his devotion to Jesus Christ. And we can see this in verses 29 through 32. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey. I mean, can you hear a clearer, more concise gospel presentation than that? This Jesus, he was crucified by you. He resurrected, he ascended. And now we are here to be witnesses of these things. Peter is clear about the gospel. The gospel is being proclaimed, I think, in the clearest possible way. And this is essential to people being called in because in the words of Paul in Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So preaching the gospel is an essential part of people being called into the church and the kingdom. And it's clearly happening here. A third thing that I don't think is um, explicitly said, but I think we can clearly infer it, is that people were drawn in by the apostles' willingness to suffer for what it is that they believe in. So they were arrested and jailed for preaching in the temple. An angel came and let them out, and they returned to the most dangerous place they could possibly be, doing the most dangerous thing they could possibly do. They returned to the temple. They continued preaching. They were then arrested again and beaten. And they walked away, in the, in, according to verse 41, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer honor in the name. 
And this has been true over the course of human history. We see that there's something that calls a certain type of people closer to the Lord when they see people willingly suffering, willingly sacrificing even their very lives for what they believe in. We, we see people over the course of church history being drawn in, Christians being drawn in to Roman amphitheaters and be, being told, recant your faith in Jesus Christ or we'll feed you to the lions. Recant your faith in Jesus Christ or we will use you as a human candle. Recant your faith in Jesus Christ or we will, we will burn you alive. Recant your faith in Jesus Christ or we'll boil you alive. Yet, Christian after Christian chooses a slow, miserable path to death instead of an easier path to a limited life because they believe that Jesus' resurrection means their resurrection as well because they believe that our home is not here, it's with him. And every time this happens, it seems that it happens publicly, people are drawn closer to Jesus. They're drawn closer to the church. It's happening here it's happened all over church history, and that's, I think this is what has caused the church father, Tertullian, to write, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And this is important for us to hear, because if Pew Research is to be trusted, then global restrictions against, against religion are higher than they've ever been, and they're only increasing. Then the fourth thing that we see in this passage that's drawing people in is real community. And we can't forget that this is written almost in the same breath as Luke is talking about the, the, the beauty and the purity of the fellowship there. They have all things in common. No one needs anything. And I've, explained, I've already explained what that means. But we can't overlook the real role that Christian community plays in drawing people into the church in this passage, in this young church, and in ours today. And I, I don't want to be quick to throw any particular generation under the bus. Now, I mean, we have all these clearly defined generations, it seems like now. But I, I am a very young Gen X, which means I have the best relationship with all the generations of any, that any of y'all do. So I think that puts me in a position to be able to critique the generations, which I'm happy to do uh, because we're in such good standing. But each successive generation that grows up now has more access to technology and has less Let's, let me say it like this. They're more connected to technology and they're less connected to real relationships, much less real Christian relationships, the way that we were designed to be. They're insanely connected to the world, but horribly disconnected from all these types of relationships that we're made to be in. And I think the church has responded largely in two ways to this phenomenon in, increasing around us. And uh, and I'm going to make some generalizations here. I know it's not going to be true for every church that falls in these categories, but it's true enough that I feel like it needs to be said. You have some churches that are more about the large Sunday production, and they want to facilitate this disconnected life to allow people to come in in their anonymity and leave without really being engaged. They're facilitating what it is we're seeing rise up around us. And then you have other churches that are trying to focus more on the real need for Christian community to be connected to other people. And so there are two churches in Birmingham, Alabama that I'm relationally connected to, all very good people. All right? I'm, not, I'm not questioning their character when I say this, but right now in this pandemic, 
these churches are being affected very different ways. You have your Sunday show church who's hemorrhaging right now, hemorrhaging in Birmingham. They're, they're losing money. They've laid off literally hundreds of people. And then there's this other church that has chosen to focus more on community and discipleship, and they're booming. They're growing. They, their Sunday gathering was taken from them in March and they have not gotten it back, yet they are growing beyond anything that they had ever expected to see in, in the life of their church, even under normal circumstances. And I think it's because they've, not that we shouldn't strive for, for a Sunday worship that honors God, but we have to understand that that's just a piece of it. There's real Christian community in this passage drawing people in and it's true of us here today. Then, lastly, there's one hugely important person who is drawing people in, and that is obviously the Holy Spirit. Look again at a portion of Peter's gospel presentation in verse 32. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. It is really important that we understand that no one comes to God without the Holy Spirit overcoming our inability to see Jesus as our only hope. No one comes to God without the Holy Spirit overcome our fundamental inability to see Jesus as our only hope. We talked about this last Sunday night in Discover OGC. Nowhere in Orthodox Christianity is this disagreed upon. Everyone agrees that our sin has so ravaged all of our faculties, including our mind and our will, that our sin, our active rebellion against God, prevents us from being able to see that Jesus is our only hope unless the Holy Spirit comes and overcomes our inability to see. And anyone in church history who says that we have the ability to go to Jesus without the Holy Spirit overcoming our inability has been declared a heretic. Now, over the course of 2,000 years, the, what exactly the Holy Spirit does to un- overcome our inability to see, that's been hotly debated. <laughs> but that the Holy Spirit has to do something to overcome our sin and our inability to see Jesus as beautiful and to worship him, that has not been debated in Orthodox Christianity. So those are the things that drew people in. But in this passage, it's the same very things that are repelling other people. So let's look at the people in this passage who are repelled. And probably the most helpful question that we can ask ourselves is why is it that they were repelled? And the answer, I think the clearest and most biblical answer is because they have hard hearts. These people have hard hearts, so they're not attracted, they're repelled. And Luke almost... I know he's a doctor and a historian, but almost like a counselor. He lets us see what's going on in these hard hearts in a really interesting way. And the first way he gives us a glimpse into their hard hearts is he shows us the jealousy that they're experiencing. This is Acts chapter 5, verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So why is it that they were jealous? And not just jealous, I mean so jealous that they wanted to put these people in prison. I think it all just comes down to power. They were bothered by these signs and these wonders that were being done, and not just being done, being done in the name of Jesus. You know, because they they want anything any of the accepted religious practices to be ascribed to their tradition and their teaching because that supports their power. And in verse 28, after 
they'd been arrested for the second time. We can see that this is the case because in the, the temple, the leader said, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Teaching in the name of Jesus, it threatens their power. They're jealous of their power. They're lustful of their power, I think. I would think. And Luke specifically mentions the Sadducees here. The Sadducees, they had, they, were, they had the most power because they developed an early relationship with the Roman occupiers. They did not believe in a bodily resurrection. So, so they're looking, not just teaching in the name of Jesus, but people are saying that Jesus actually resurrected and anybody believes in, in Jesus, they will resurrect too. And so of course, this, this challenges all the power that well, let me say it, it challenges everything their power was built on. And they observe not just the loss, the potential loss of their power, they're observing the real rise in the power of people like Peter and John. And power is a really dangerous thing because if we're not careful with power, when we have power, we're gonna become prideful. And when we lose power, as in the case here, we're going to become jealous. And I think the thing that, as Peter and John receive more power, the thing that keeps them humble and, and, and not prideful in the power is because they realize this power isn't something that, that they've earned. It isn't something that they have developed. It's something that God has graciously and by no merit of them, their own given to them in the deep sense that he can take it away and that would be just fine. If we have any power in our lives and don't understand that, we're going to either be prideful when we have it or jealous when we don't. And the second way Luke shows us their hard hearts play out is after the jealousy, we move into confusion. So the disciples had been arrested. They, unbeknownst to the authorities, had been let out of jail by an angel. Uh, they had gone back to the temple. They were continued preaching. And so the next morning, this is when the leaders come together and they give the order, hey, bring, bring those people back out. We want, we want to see them. And in verse 23 and 24, we get... I think, the kind of comical report that they get back. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, here it is, they were greatly perplexed, confused about them, wondering what this would come to. So what were they perplexed about? I think they were perplexed. Like, how, how did these people get out of the prison? I think they were perplexed. Why then did they go back to doing the very thing that put them in prison? They don't understand how these events are transpiring. They don't understand the motivation of, inside of these people that they're wanting to shut down. And we see that a hard heart like these leaders have is going to be confused about the wonders of God transpiring around them. It's a soft heart that's going to be open to these signs and wonders. And I would go so far as to say a soft heart isn't only open to these signs and wonders being true works of God, but desires God's miracles to be true. Like Tim Keller, he's talked about in many different times when he, when he shares his faith with somebody, and his context is New York City, when he shares his faith with somebody and, he, and he, once he feels like the gospel is mentally understood, he'll look at these people and say, do you want this to be true? Because he knows that a hard, then he gets to see, are we dealing with a hard heart or a soft heart? If they say, no, I don't want this to be true, he can't change the state of the heart. But he would say overwhelmingly when somebody says, I want this to be true. That's the group of people, it may not be instantly, but over time who are drawn into the kingdom. A hard heart is gonna be confused. A soft heart is going to be open.
And then next, we see that their hearts moved from confusion to fear. The guards go back to the temple, rearrest the apostles, and then we see the fear coming on them. Then the captain of the officers went and brought them, not, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So a hard heart is going to constantly analyze what it is that we have and how might I lose it. We're constantly going to be in fear of losing these things, rather looking for what God might have for us, even in the most uncertain of times. And Christians, if we can hear something from this, anything in this passage, certainly we can relate to uncertain times. We are uncertain about how this virus is going going to proceed. We're uncertain about how it's going to affect us if we're infected. We're uncertain about how it might affect the economy. We're uncertain, you know, we never know how a new president is going to uh, is going to rule. We're uncertain of what, how, where the Senate is even going to go at this point. And it's okay to be uncertain, but as Christians, we're told, don't fear. Because when we fear, this really is a part of our former self coming in. We're analyzing what it is that we have, and we're fearful of how we might lose it. But as Christians, we're called to trust in a sovereign God that promises, no matter how, no matter how uncertain our circumstances are, he is going to use it for our good and for his glory. But these chief priests, they don't have that concept. They don't have that kind of heart. And so then Luke shows us that how they move from jealousy, then confusion, then fear into rage. They strictly charge Peter and the apostles, do not teach in the name of Jesus anymore. And don't tell all these people that it's our fault that he's dead. And then Peter responds. We're coming back to his gospel response. Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And here it is. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. I mean, this, is, this, isn't, this isn't a minor disagreement. There was something going on that enraged them. How dare these people insinuate to obey God means disobeying us. They're, they're directly putting us on the other side of God's will. Can you imagine, I would think they were thinking, can you imagine what would happen if this kind of teaching spread all over Israel? These people's whole identity is wrapped in their power as, and their status as religious teachers. And every time their status and their power as religious teachers is potentially taken from them, a part of their soul dies. Because this is their identity. This is who they want to be seen as. And I read this, and I'll, I'll tell you, it sits a little too close to home for me. <laughs> Because I, I have wrestled with this over the years. And I can remember, largely as a younger Christian, but that doesn't mean I'm free of it now. Largely as a younger Christian, seeing people who disagree with me theologically and getting at least very frustrated with them, if not internally angry. And I think I control my anger well, but just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not in there. And we're not talking about some sort of righteous anger around the purity of the gospel. All right, We're talking about prideful anger around secondary and tertiary things because something about my identity is threatened. But when the, the singular focus of the most important things about our faith are clear in our hearts and when our most important audience of one is clear in our minds, 
then we won't respond with the type of anger when someone disagrees with us in realms of theology and religion. And then the last thing that we see going on in the hearts, uh, in these hard hearts, is passivity. We have this really interesting person who comes on the scene named Gamaliel. And he steps in, and he's a Pharisee, which is interesting because the Pharisees did not have as much power in the society as the Sadducees did. But clearly, he is a, a very well-respected man by all. And we learn in Acts chapter 22 that this Gamaliel was actually one of Paul's former teachers. And this man stands up, and we read this. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And then he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And I do think there's wisdom to what Gamaliel is, is suggesting, but I think all too often in the church, we put this, kind, this, uh, this recommendation, this suggestion on a higher pedestal than we need to. Because a soft heart in that moment would have gone and investigated and said, let's go and see if, if this is true. But what Gamaliel is doing, he's promoting passivity. He's saying, let's, let's sit back. Let's see how this shakes out. A, a, a soft heart wants to go, wants to investigate, wants to see if it's true. So what Gamaliel is doing, it's, it's a subtle form of resistance, but it's resistance to the gospel nonetheless. And I see this especially clear in people who have higher access to the church. You see this when people, they, they see that probably Christianity is right, but it, but it doesn't allow us to do all the things that our sinful hearts desire. So we, say, we form a... a we create a form of no that we can live with. And that's called not yet. Maybe later. Maybe after I graduate college. After I get married. After I have kids. And middle schoolers and high schoolers in, in, in our midst. There's a call on you to say yes to Jesus Christ. To be able to do that. To make your parents' faith your own faith. And it's all too often when life seems easy and comfortable and you don't know how this is going to play out in your school context, you probably aren't going to say no at this stage of life, but not realize that saying not yet is the same as saying no. And this kind of later or not yet, it's exactly what Gamaliel is doing and it will have the same tragic outcome as the angry no of the Sadducees. So this passage is about a healthy church in a hostile world. And this is exactly where we find ourselves today. So as a church, I think it's, it's helpful that we have categories to understand as our church exists and God willing continues to grow, that there, why it is that some people are drawn into what we're doing and why some people are at least repelled, if not hate what it is we're doing. Why some smell the fragrance of life and why others, they look at us and they smell the stench of death. 
And so obviously I've quoted Paul in the beginning writing that to the Corinthian church, but I think he, he, in writing to the Ephesian church in chapter 5, verse 2, he gives us another helpful angle to this. Paul says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant, fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So I'm going to draw on John Piper's exposition here of this verse. But when Christ died for sinners, there was a fragrant offering produced that God smelled and it was very pleasing to God. And now here you have Paul writing to the Ephesian church who's standing as a missionary exemplifying the same kind of sacrifice that Jesus did. And as he serves the lost and sacrifices himself in the same way that Jesus did, there is a fragrance being emitted up to God. God smells it and God is pleased by it because it is very Christ-like. And so as this fragrance is being released up, it's also being released out. And it's going to be received in two very different ways. For some, they are going to smell the sacrificial love of Christ and they are going to smell death. They're going to hear the gospel and they're going to hear death. They're going to see the cross and they're going to see death. They're not going to see anything that they like and they're going to walk away. And that smell, that stench of death will lead them to death. This is what Paul to the Corinthian church calls the perishing. And these are the religious leaders in our passage. But to others, hopefully most of us in this room, we smell the fragrance of Jesus suffering for our salvation and we smell the fragrance of life. And that fragrance of life is going to live us to, it is going to deliver us to a true and an abundant life. And these are the many or the multitude in our passage here. As well as us, if we believe that Jesus' resurrection means ours as well. And so the first question we have to ask ourselves when we look at this passage is what is it that we smell? When we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, do we smell the fragrance of life or do we smell the stench of death? And then the second question is this, do you offer a fragrance to those around you? So if the fragrance is rooted in Christ-like life, in our Christ-like life, then people are going to be both attracted to and repelled by that. So we might need to evaluate, are people being attracted and repelled? And again, we can't control what it is that other people smell, but we do control whether or not we emit a fragrance to the world based on our, are we living the same kind of sacrificial Christ-like life toward the lost in our community, in our homes, in our workplace, in a gym, whatever that place is. And and if we look and the answer is no, there's not a lot of people being attracted or repelled to our, the way we live our life, then I want to say it's good to acknowledge that and you can be encouraged in that because the same Holy Spirit that is revolutionizing the lives of the apostles and specifically Peter or John is here to do the same thing for us. The same Holy Spirit can make us Christ's life. The same Holy Spirit can give us a fragrance that will go up and it will go out and it will go wide and far. maybe even through signs and wonders. And so that's why in the midst of this second great wave of persecution that the church is experiencing, the apostles walk away at the end with nothing but gratitude and joy. Sure signs that the Holy Spirit is in them and leading them. 
So my prayer is that we would continue to be a healthy, growing church in this community. I have every expectation that we will continue to live in a hostile environment of some sort. And I pray that we would be marked as a church of emitting a fragrance up to God that is pleasing and out to the world. And some are going to be repelled, but my prayer is that many are attracted. And that whether people are attracted or repelled, that we would be marked in the same kind of Holy Spirit-centered way as the apostles. We'd be marked by gratitude and by joy. No matter our circumstances, no matter our certainty, and no matter how dark things may seem at certain times. Because we know that we do not live for this world. We have a promise in the world to come. And that's what we hope in. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you give us so many insights into what is going on in our hearts. And we pray this morning that that your Holy Spirit would be with us and inside us in a way that would draw us to you, give us more awareness of what's transpiring in our hearts. And God, we do want to boldly ask that you would do dramatic things in our hearts and in our lives and around us that would call people to you. And would you make us open to that being through means that we do not understand, means that we cannot explain what we would call signs and wonders, and would we not even be would we not only be open to these things, but even praying for them? Because your heart is for the lost. Your heart is for the blind. Your heart is for the one. And our request is that ours would be as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.